We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Archer 452. What's up, Archer? Mike Norvell had a picture of him with cornrows. Oh no, during the during his college football playing days surface a few years ago. What embarrassing picture from your youth would you most not want resurfacing? I mean, there's some pictures of a child that if they resurfaced, I'd be like, dude, that's like, you know, inappropriate because it was a child. But like when I was older, I wore my super my mom made me a homemade Superman costume for for mm-hmm. Halloween and I wore that sucker for years and I would not just wear it on Halloween. Let's just leave it at that. That was not an Halloween outfit only for me. So you'd be like, dude, is that June and you've got the Superman <laughs> costume on? That'd probably be about the only ones I I don't I know that there'd be anything that would be like like there's nothing ever like that. Like if you saw a picture of me as a freshman in college, you'd say like, dude, you had earrings in. You're so lame. Like you're you know like that's about it. You know what I mean? But yeah, I, don't, I tried I don't to dye my hair blonde as a senior in high school for our senior trip, and it turned red, like orange red. You know, like a redhead red. That's not embarrassing. That's just not attractive. <laughs> you know, so not right. not really not that I know of anyway. Oh uh, man, I. I didn't really have like any crazy hairstyles. Like I pretty much had the same hairstyle my entire life. Like I didn't really yep. trend away. I mean, I had earrings too, but like I didn't think that, that was embarrassing. The only yeah. thing I can think of is like I remember when I was in like first grade, maybe second grade. I remember like I was a really chubby, fat little kid, right? And I remember, <laughs> I remember the first day of school. I thought I was so cool, man. I had this Digimon shirt and this vest, and I was like, dude, I am <laughs> rocking this vest. <laughs> And now looking back and I'm like, you did not rock that. <laughs> no one has ever rocked a vest in the history of the world. Oh. So yes. Oh, well and I know there's I know there's a first day of school picture there somewhere. Yeah. So yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I'm sure your mom has some. I have to talk to oh, your dad sure and mom next time I talk to your dad, I'll have to ask him about getting me one of those. Get me yeah. a copy of that action. The, the vest made you look a little slumming though, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Andrew Porter, do you think elevation played a role in the game last night for florida i mean could could it have played a role to a degree what i would say ryan is the reason i would i would say no without being there is the things that they were doing were not elevation fatigue related things they were lack of focus and discipline they were false starts dumb penalties missed assignments it was stuff like that having you know like the special teams coordinator didn't have a lack of oxygen in his head and that's why he didn't know they had two guys with number three that's something they should have figured out when they were doing walkthroughs back in gainesville yeah you know what i mean like 
Uh, they also they also jumped on him super early. Like when I think of like the, yeah. the elevation thing, that's usually like you wear down quickly, mm-hmm. right? Like and Florida didn't wear down. Florida got beat from the start to the first finish. play so of the game not, of, yeah. of scrimmage from when on offense for Utah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. could it have now? Could it have factored into where they 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 didn't have any juice left to make a second half comeback? Maybe. I mean, sure. maybe. But I just I think they just got whooped by a superior team and a superior coach team. I just. I just think that's what the reality is. And the transfers aren't going to have the impact for them that maybe they had hoped. I mean, there's a reason Taraja Mitchell wasn't that guy at Ohio State, right? I mean. Yeah, I couldn't believe he was on the team, man. I yeah. had no idea he was even on the team. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Right. They've had some weird luck with linebackers recently, so like yeah. a weird note. But, like, even the but, Muhammad Diabate kid that was there that went to Utah was actually a decent player, and he stunk at Florida. It's like, what the heck, man? Weird. I'll say this, too. I'm very curious to see how this impacts some of these other teams that are relying on on uh, remade offensive lines, right? Is, yeah. you know, Michigan, USC, teams like that that had to completely remake their offensive line with transfers. Is it going to take you a little while to get your offensive line going? Yeah, especially if you play a better opponent. Fortunately for USC, they don't play anybody worth a darn until Notre Dame, really. Uh, man, you're telling so, me San Jose State and Nevada isn't a tough start to the yeah, year? Stanford, like, Arizona State, yeah. and Colorado. No, no, it's yeah. really not. So, yeah, I'm picking up the sarcasm in your voice. Yes. A, by the way, that's a, another movie. Very funny, quotable movie that should have been on my list earlier. That's a Tommy Boy quote. So, as I hope so. I was landed on pretty thick. So, there we go. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com slash audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com slash audio. That's carshield.com slash audio. There's that. Lance Hab, what did you think of the idea of air bottles to deal with altitude? I don't, I don't know what that is. Is that a thing? Yeah, what does that mean? I, no idea. Never heard of that before. Air bottles. Is that saying like just air that I don't, okay. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not hmm. sure. Interesting. Lance, do you want to put a follow-up in the chat? I just yeah. generally don't know what that means. Sorry. Some of the questions that people have uh, or some of the comments people have had about embarrassing pictures that might eat uh might eat might have had his younger people the only i my parents wouldn't let me get like a rat tail remember rat tails 
Oh, they yeah. never let me get one of those. So I, I was only on like a little mini one. But like that's again, that's not. I'm trying to think. Like that's not embarrassing. I just I, really I, t- I talked about this on a solo show one time because someone accused me of having like uh, frosted tips at one point. My buddy Mike actually did have frosted tips at one time, but that was okay. never me. It was never that. Anything. Yeah, I, I, I said dyed my hair that one time. And it was my whole head, and it was uh, it was funny because the girl that did it, she's now like she does. She's a like a beautician or whatever now. Like that's what she does. Yeah. She you know runs that something like that wherever she lives. And she she gets done and she's like, uh oh, like that's never a good sign when someone's doing your hair, right? No, you know what I mean? Never, never. And I'm like, what happened? So she gives me a mirror and my whole hair is like orange. I'm like, how the freaking heck? So I grab the box. And it's like, no, blonde. And then there's this warning on the box that says any natural red tints are going to come out when you dye it. So apparently, my whole freaking head is natural <laughs> red tints. Nice. So I've had some weird hair experiences because like I thought it was going to go well, Ryan, because actually the color that I was going for was that color my hair was for like the first three, four years of my life. I was bl- like light blonde. Yeah. The first years like there's one picture of my parents when because my my parents were 22 and 23 when they had me. And I was like maybe a year old. And they had like a family picture, like the JC sweaters on and all that, the union sweaters, whatever. Sure. And I asked my mom, like joked with my dad one time. I was like, did you ever think that maybe I wasn't yours? <laughs> It's like my dad's got like dark brown hair, big brown eyes. My mom's got I, I think brown of, hair. I think about that about my kids yeah. right now, to be honest, a little bit, man. They're both like blondes. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, but this is your wife kind of blonde? blonde. Yeah, but she's like dirty blonde. Like these yeah. kids are blonder than but she But it gets is. darker. Like, hmm. it, but my dad was like, if you didn't look just like I looked as a baby, I might have thought so. But apparently I looked just like my dad did as a baby. But he's like, I might have thought so. Because it was like light blonde and like. His parents didn't have blonde hair. My mom's parents didn't have blonde hair. So my dad's like, why is our kid got blonde hair? Right. And so I thought like I'd have blonde tints in my hair, but nope, nope. That was not the case. So all of our pictures on Niagara Falls and in New York City are like just orange hair. My little Tommy Hilfiger shirts and all, you know, I'm just such a dork. Tommy Hilfiger. Such a dork. I thought it was way cooler than I actually was. We'll We'll just leave it at that. We'll just leave it at that. From TD Brammy four says, why do you think Memphis isn't prioritized more in realignment? They put talent in the NFL and the stadium is packed playing, t- playing teams like SMU and UCF. Imagine if the competition is better. Well, it's, it's my understanding is it's, it's really not a very good school, which kind of, I think hurts a little bit, but honestly, I, it, I don't know that Memphis is a big football market. I mean, the, the big, the big draw in the state of Tennessee from the, media market standpoint, Ryan is going to be Not Tennessee. So. I mean, it's right. just going to be yeah. that team. So I don't, I don't know that. Um, I, you know, I don't know that, that I'm actually going to try to look it up and see where they rank as a, as a TV market. But uh, it says that Memphis is the 52nd largest in the United States from a media standpoint. Um, okay. So that's not real big. And so I think that's, probably plays a, a big role in that in that uh because like look stanford and in cal we've talked about this ryan like they're not they're not programs that i look at and say gee those are really passionate fan bases and all that but they're still sure. huge tv markets sure and the thought being like hey you know getting florida state out there is going to draw some eyeballs getting and i don't necessarily agree with that i don't think people in the west coast give a crap about clemson or florida state or miami right notre dame might get them some eyeballs but notre dame's not going to play there as often as some of those other teams are most likely sure i just you know but but at least there's the potential of it is still a big market maybe we can eventually get them to 
you know, care. I just don't think Memphis is that kind of base. So the problem that some of us make when we have these conversations is we, we tend to focus too much on the quality of the on-field product or yep. even the number of people in the stands. I mean, it, it, it's not about that. It's like, does anyone think that the Big Ten went after Rutgers because they packed their stadium or they have a good football program? No, it's they wanted to get in that t- that New York City, Northern Jersey TV market. That's 100% why. Did Maryland add any value to them as a football program when they went after Maryland? No, they wanted the Baltimore DC TV market. That's what they wanted. That's the only, that's the primary reason these decisions are made. Matter of fact, but you can argue that the move that the ACC is making is one of the most non TV revenue decisions or TV market decisions that we've seen amongst these conference realignment. They're doing it because they're going to get money and they found teams willing to sacrifice money to come, which helps them redistribute that money to other places, which is the the draw. Right. And it, and it, it somewhat keeps Florida state from being able to get out. It's going to be harder now for Florida state to get out now that they're not expanding or now that they are expanding and it's going to benefit Florida state financial. It's going to be a little harder pull to get them out of there. So being able to flip NC state, and get NC State on board. That was the one team that went to yes was NC State. Clemson, mm-hmm. Florida State voted no. I don't even know if North Carolina voted, honestly, because of what happened on campus and all that kind of stuff. I don't know even know if they were – I honestly don't know if they even voted. It just wouldn't have mattered sure. because you already had enough. You had 12 of the 15, so it's the 14 ACC teams plus Notre Dame. And, of course, Notre Dame is going to vote yes. So the four that voted against it initially were Florida State, Clemson, North Carolina, and NC State. And there was a big push from people around North Carolina to keep NC State from going across because normally NC State's kind of like Oklahoma. Oklahoma's is going to follow Texas wherever Texas goes. They're like a little puppy. Sure. That's how NC State is perceived. But the president of NC State was like, "No, this is what's best for us, and we're gonna we're gonna do it." So, uh, but you know, you added you added like institutions, right? Like minded institutions to that. Yeah, there was a TV market aspect to it, but it's it was more so we want to get the additional. Because the way that the ACC contract works, Ryan, is if we for every team we expand, you have to add to our value. Uh, you have to add that amount of what we average teams. So, like if they're paying teams thirty a year, and they add three teams, you've got to pay them like ninety now, and then they'll only give a portion of. So, like SMU is not taking a dime for nine years, and then I uh, think it's like up to seven years that Stanford and Cal are going to take like thirty percent, and then that money gets redistributed to the rest of the, including Notre Dame. By the way, Notre Dame will get more money from the ACC now uh, contract than they did before, which adds value to Notre Dame as well. I don't know that they'll like so part of that pool of what I think Ross Dellinger said is like 55 million uh, will get distributed. So like they'll pay those schools what they're going to pay them. And it's like 55 million a year gets redistributed to the rest of the league. Some of that's going to be redistributed evenly. And then another portion of that is going to kind of be used as like an incentive base. So like if you. You know, if you're if you're doing good, mostly football related is what Ross reported. It's mostly football related, but uh, teams that do well will get like more of a cut. So if you like win the ACC, go to certain bowl games, you get even more of a cut. And that's what they're trying to do to incentivize, you know, like Florida State and Clemson and those teams to stay in the league. So uh, it was very interesting, really. Uh, Jim Phillips, I'll be honest, Jim Phillips did a really nice job with this, Ryan, making this happen. Like it makes no sense. Um, it makes no sense geographically, but like. That ship has sailed. Like none of this makes sense geographically. It yeah, makes a big, lot of big sense. Ten already killed that. Yes, I mean you, even with the SEC with Texas and Oklahoma, you could say that's kind of dumb. But it's like Texas and Oklahoma have 
Like it's still in the south. It's not that far to get from Dallas to Tuscaloosa or New sure. Orleans. I mean, literally, they border on the same like Louisiana, and there's already Missouri's already there. Texas A&M is already there. Like, okay, it, it doesn't make sense, but it, of all the dumb moves, that the Texas Oklahoma makes the most sense of the SEC. Sure. Like USC and UCLA make zero sense of the Big Ten. Washington Oregon makes zero sense of the Big Ten. At least the ACC can say we're a conference that values academic excellence. We've got Notre Dame, we've got Duke, we've got North Carolina, we've got Virginia, we've got Miami, which is an outstanding academic institution. We've got Georgia Tech and all that. And now we've added two other premier academic institutions. And I believe, I could be wrong on this, Ryan, but I, I believe I've read that SMU is also considered a very good school. I believe. I think I'm not, I'm not sure on as, as certain of that one, but I believe I've read that places. So at least the ACC can say, hey, look, we at least are keeping true to who we are as, an, as a conference with these additions. Even though the geography aspect doesn't make sense, we're adding conferences that, that believe in the things we believe in. Sure. Like they just added one of the best women's basketball programs in the country to their to their conference. That you know what I mean? Like, okay, that that, that works. But this was primarily about money. This is going to help us get more money to our rest of our league. And again, that helps Notre Dame because Notre Dame's going to get more money now too from from this move. I'm curious what's going to happen to the Stanford series. So, like, you could do one of two things, one of three things, really. One is they keep Stanford on as a rival. Now, the last year that they're contracted to play Stanford is next year, 2024. They're not contra- contracted past that. Do they just sign again and they play at Stanford and then it's so Stanford and then the five ACC teams? Or do they say, we'll play Stanford as part of a rotation in the ACC, right? Or the third is they play Stanford and then only four ACC teams every year would be the ones that those would be the options to me. I'm kind of hoping they just play Stanford as part of a normal rotation. As I've said before, Ryan, I do not care about keeping that rivalry beyond its current extension. I don't, (laughs) but this way it actually is, it could work for you because you could say, Hey, we're still going to play Stanford, just not as often as we have in the past. Cause it'll make sense for the ACC to say, Hey, Notre Dame, can we schedule these guys a little bit more frequently than you do some of the other teams? Because that helps us with, you know, where every team may play Cal, like, three or four times you may play, you know, Stanford three or four times, four, four or five times you guys may play them more frequently. So that way fewer teams have to go out there. It's a little easier for Notre Dame. I don't know. I could see something like that, but I'm curious how that's going to play out, Ryan. That's yeah. going to be interesting. Very interesting. We had Conrad who says, where does Tyler Buckner transfer next after losing the starting job at Alabama? Would Notre Dame take him back? Why are we assuming he's just going to transfer because he lost the starting job for the first game of the year, right? Seriously. Like, I, I don't think we should have that assumption. I don't think Tyler would do that. That'd be kind of silly. His options of transferring would be a lot less if he decides to leave, like, right now. Yeah. Would Notre Dame take him back? Would they take him back? I don't know, probably, but I don't know that, like, I. that wouldn't make any sense for either side. Like once you yeah. left, that ship has sailed, right? I mean, I'm sorry. Like you yeah, chose I, to I, leave. I, it's, I, pers- you know. I personally would not take him back. That's yeah. just me, though. That's not Notre Dame opinion, but I would not. I would that. think they would take him back, Ryan. I just don't think they'd take him back to be the guy again. It's like, look, man, you know, you want to come back, get your degree, finish up your degree, and and be a backup quarterback, sure. But we're moving on with these other guys. I just, you know, Tyler didn't do anything to burn the bridge per se, Ryan, but it's just kind of like you made your decision, buddy, and we understand it and we respected it, but we've moved on. That's kind of right. how I am too. And I'm and I'm a big Tyler Buckner supporter, but it's like you made your decision now because it's not working out. You don't come back 
yeah here and just there would have such, to be such conditions. a weird such a weird precedent if you just yeah. were like yeah come back man yeah, the thing for me ryan is i would say tyler if you want to come back and be here for a year get your degree you got to understand maybe you're going to want to get into coaching when this is over with i don't know but like you're not going to be our starter if you're okay with that then yeah come back because i do kind of like the idea of supporting him to be able to get his notre dame degree which he didn't get but no he can't be my starting quarterback I mean, now you're going to, if he doesn't start this year, you're going to lose another whole year of development. Like, no, sorry. We're moving on. Yeah. yeah. That's my, that's my stance. Agree. Laker underscore Irish. What changes did Notre Dame make after the 26 season that set them up for success in 2017? Did you expect 2017 to be as good of a rebound as it was? To a degree, yeah. I mean, look, I never thought – I thought the 2016 team had a lot more talent than they thought – I uh, than they did. I loved the Mike Elko hire. I thought – I mean, that's really what changes they make. It, it's three changes. It's change one, Mike Elko, who brought Clark Lee with him. Change number two, Chip Long. Change number three, Matt Bayless. Those were the changes. And the first two were driven by Jack Swarbrick. So, little secret here, and I think I've shared this – might have shared this before – but Brian Kelly was trying like a dog to get out of Notre Dame after 2016. He was trying hard. His agent was pushing him to LSU and all types of places. He wanted out. And so while he's trying to get out, Jack Swarbrick and people under him were trying to put a staff together because, I mean, I think they knew Kelly wasn't going to leave and they weren't going to fire Kelly. And so it was Jack Swarbrick, and I heard this from the horse's mouth, not Jack's mouth, but people who were involved in this, like directly involved with this. The early conversations they had with people from Notre Dame or with Jack and his staff, not Brian Kelly. Brian Kelly eventually got involved when he realized he wasn't going anywhere, and then he wanted to take all credit for it. But Jack Swarbrick drove those hires. Now, the Matt Bayless one was interesting because Brian Kelly was going to hire a strength coach who, had, who was at USC. He was like an assistant at USC. And if you remember at the time, USC did not have a great strength program. Still, and it still didn't until – I don't know what Lincoln Riley's done, but they didn't under taught Clay Hilton. And then Bob Diaco, if you remember how Bob Diaco got fired, like UConn waited till really late to fire him, like January to fire him because they wanted to wait till they got to pass a certain date where if they fired him, they'd have to pay him as much money, which I think is super dirty, by the way. Yeah. I think that's really wrong because now coaching jobs are like already filled and all that. And so Diaco had Matt Bayless as a strength coach. And if you remember that draft before, UConn had like three dudes that just like went off at the combine, right? And so uh, – Bob Diaco calls up Brian Kelly and he's like, Hey, I don't know what you plan on doing on strength coach. Cause they hadn't announced that new hire yet, but you need to look at this guy. And apparently Matt Bayless really impressed Brian Kelly. So I was told that Brian Kelly went to the guy he was going to hire and said, Hey, we want to have you guys kind of do this together. And the guy balked and didn't want to do it. And so he just hired Matt Bayless, but those are the three changes. I mean, that that's it. And there was this stuff about, Oh, you know, Brian Kelly's change. I was all PR, all PR. You talk to players on that team from 2017, especially 2018, that dude uh, welcomed us back in January, and then we didn't see him again until spring ball. I mean, <laughs> that's what they'll tell you. Yeah. Like Matt, Mike Elko, Matt Bayless, Chip Long, Harry Heaston, those were the guys running that team in 2017, not Brian Kelly. And the leadership of that team, not Brian Kelly. And that's the kind of stuff that I knew, and that's why I was very anti-Brian Kelly for years because I knew that stuff, but nobody wanted to listen to that. Right. I mean, I'm sitting there railing about the Notre Dame strength program in 2015. And I keep, well, they, they were 10 and three and there were this many points. I'm like, yes, but they won because they had phenomenal players. They wasted talent. 
And then when they lost Jalen Smith and lost Will Fuller and lost all those guys, Ronnie Stanley and all those guys in 2016, and all of a sudden the wheels came off. But that was that was in the making. That was that, I remember I was on Bill King's show before the 2016 season, Ryan, and he asked me how I thought Notre Dame was going to do. And I said, I don't know. I said, one of two things is going to happen. They're going to either be really good because the talent will continue to win out or they're going to implode. It was going to be one of those two things. There was not going to be any nine and three season. And and I now imploding to me meant like six and six. I didn't see four and eight coming. Right. I didn't. But they were a better talent team than four and eight. So going to 10 and three was the next year was more of getting back on track as opposed to holy crap. You know, I can't believe they won 10 games. It was a heck of a turnaround, but that was more of getting back to where they should be. Right. More than anything else. Now, what impressed me in 2017 was how they got to 10 wins. That was the impressive thing because they couldn't throw the ball. I mean, they're winning games going like nine of 19 throwing the football and blowing yeah. out ranked teams going. Nine. They blew UCLA. They went four. Could you imagine what the score would be against USC this year if Notre, if the Notre Dame quarterbacks went nine of 19 for 120 yards? It's going to be 49 to 14, Ryan, but it's going to be yeah. the other way around. <laughs> it's, you know what I mean? They beat USC by 35 points, and their starting quarterback went 9 of 19 for 120 yards. Right? Like, that's how dominant, physically dominant that team was. And so I didn't see that coming. But I liked the – the more I studied Chip Long, I liked that hire. I really liked the Mike Elko hire. They were coming off of a really good 2016 season with Wake defensively. They had a really good linebacking core, Ryan. I don't know if you remember that group. They had some really good linebackers back then. I think Justin Stranad was like a backup on that team. Probably. They had another – what was the other kid's name? They had a really good linebacker on that team. He was an inside linebacker. I think he was like a seventh-round draft pick. Oh, gosh, what was his name? Give me a second. As soon as I say it, you're going to remember. Markel Lee. Yeah, oh, Markel yeah. Lee. They had yeah. Thomas Brown on that team. Duke Ajofor was a junior on that team. You remember him? He was a good player. Yeah. Uh, they had Jesse Bates was on that team. Sure. So yeah. that was a really good Wake Forest defense that Mike Elko had that year. They held team they held teams to 22.2 points that year. They won a game that year, Ryan, 7 to 3. They Dang. lost to Florida State 17 to 6 and they lost to Boston College 17 to 14. Like it was kind of similar to, you know, some Iowa stuff last year. Like he did a really nice job with that with that team. Can you imagine right now Wake Forest winning a game 7 to 3 right now? Nah. Well, no. they, they just play Elon, so I guess anything's possible. But well, they they won thirty seven seventeen. Yeah, I know. So, I know. The, uh, but yeah, I mean, so that's what happened in twenty seventeen. Is I I wasn't surprised that they turned it around, Ryan. But mm-hmm. if I if I told you, oh no no, I saw I saw them being a team that's going to run for two hundred sixty yards a year, and do I, I saw I'm lying, lying to you. If the way they did it is what I predicted, because it wasn't, <laughs> it absolutely wasn't. Remember, too, we didn't know that all those teams were going to be as good as they were either, right? Sure. I mean, Michigan State was coming off of a 3-9 and nine year. We didn't know they were going to be a 10-win team. Uh, Georgia was coming off of an 8-5 and five year. We didn't know that they were going to end up being the, you know, defending, you know, the, the national runners up. There were some, you know, Miami wasn't very good the year before. So some of the teams that ended up like being great wins that year, we didn't know that they were going to be that good coming into the season. So so that's the other thing that, that adds to, yeah, I thought they'd go 10-3. and three. You know what I mean? I just didn't think that it was going to be as impressive as it was and that some of the teams that they beat and beat convincingly were going to be as good as they were. Like, we thought USC was going to – like, honestly, going into that year, Ryan, most people thought USC was going to be the best team they are going to play that year. 
because they were coming off that really great 2016 season, and they had Sam Darnold coming back, had Ronald Jones coming back, had some really good receivers coming back. Like, you thought, man, this USC team's going to be really, really good. And they were pretty good that year. They weren't as good as they were in 2016. But, like, Georgia was preseason top 25, but I think Georgia was like – I'm going to have to actually look up that game, uh, see what – I mean, Georgia was ranked, Ryan, but they weren't ranked super high. Let me see what they were. They they were – Seventh in that game, they were fifteenth in that game. It was a fifteen versus twenty-four game. Okay, yeah. so like, no, no. People thought Georgia would be good. They beat at App State the week before, but it's not like Georgia was was you know people thought they were what they what they were. You know what I mean? Like that's that's the difference be, between it. So I would say the impressiveness of that is is really what surprised me. Actually, going to twenty seventeen, I want to see if I'm, I'm correct on this. The highest ranked opponent, yeah, USC was the number four team in the country coming into that year, Ryan. So that was the team that everybody thought was going to be the best team on their schedule. Stanford was ranked ahead in the AP. Stanford and USC were both ranked ahead of Georgia coming into the preseason poll. So NC State wasn't ranked. They ended up being a top 25 team. Michigan State wasn't ranked. They ended up being a top 25 team. Miami was 18th. So four of their opponents were ranked, but – they ended up playing seven ranked opponents that year in the top 20 in, in the regular season. And that was not what we thought would be the case. So it was a fascinating year, man. Really fascinating year. So yeah. Thanks for the, that thanks for the rant. <laughs> Ray Holcraft. I thought the one subpar performance was special teams overall. I know things are situational, but is there anything you really want to see out of special teams on Saturday? I- Ryan, would you say the overall special teams was subpar? I thought the kick, the field goal miss was a subpar, but I didn't think the other. Well, I didn't think the kickoff return wasn't great. Like it was okay. Yeah. But, I mean, it wasn't they had great. The one, they had the one decent return and then one, like they only had two returns the whole game. Yeah. Then the one got pinned. Uh, and then the other one, didn't the first one go out of bounds or go into the end zone? One of them, I thought one of them went into the end zone. I, I, the first one was definitely returned by Ford. I, they only got it to like the maybe 20 something like yeah. that so yeah yeah i mean punt cut punt team was good punt cover team was good pat was good field goal was bad what do i want to see uh, look honestly ray i'm just one of those people when it comes to special teams just do your job i i really am yeah. if you if you get like last year you're a great punt block team that's awesome but you know what i would have sacrificed a few of those blocks for being better in the return game and better in coverage in in some of those areas like make more field goals Right. Like, I, you know, I, I like a more balanced approach. I just want to see a balanced special teams, you know, one that's good in every area. That's what I would like to see. Just do your job. I, I don't need something I special. I don't need a kick return for a touchdown. Cause like, if you get a kick return for a touchdown against Tennessee state, what, so what? I mean, no offense. No, not that it wouldn't be fun to watch, but like, does that mean, Oh, we're going to return one against Ohio state. It's Tennessee state guys. Right. You know what I mean, like, you know, um, I just want to see them do their jobs. That's really the big yeah. key for me. I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I, I just, I don't want to like have to hyper focus on special teams afterwards because that's a negative thing for the most part, yeah. right? Like it's rarely ever a positive when you talk. If we're talking teams. a lot about the special teams after this game, it's probably bad. Like uh, there's just yeah. not a, guys, there's just not a lot I plan on taking away from this game other than just how hard do they play and how focused are they? That's really it. We had a question from Laker underscore Irish. What do you project from Joshua Burnham this year or next year? Well, I mean, I'm hoping this year he can <laughs> go ahead, Ryan. I was going to say completely different, like I think outlooks for this season compared to the next season, in my opinion, yeah. like this year, you just want him to 
be able to round out a niche as a rotational player. And then maybe next year is the year that he breaks out. I think is potentially yeah. like if he had three sat three to four sacks this year, I'd be like, okay, cool. That's a good starting point. Yeah. Well, next year. I, I hope we get more than three off. now that he's already got one in the opener. You know what I mean? But like, you know, like we've said, you and I, I think talked about this this summer, Ryan. I want to see a very Isaiah Foskey from 2020 type of season from Josh Burnham where Foskey was a rotation guy all year. He had four and a half sacks. So he showed some flashes. He had a blocked punt against Pitt. So you could see the te- potential was there, but he was backing up, you know, um, a, a veteran player, Dalen Hayes he was backing up a veteran, older veteran guy. And then the next year he, bur- he breaks it because like you, you weren't surprised that Isaiah Foskey broke out in 21. We weren't surprised sure. uh, because you saw the potential the year before. That's what I and, and then he broke so that so it's basically Ryan, what you're saying is that's the exact same path we saw from Foskey, could be similar to what we would want to see from Josh Burnham. So and it was Foskey's second year as a player, right? And you know, he redshirted as a freshman. Next year he's a key rotation guy, gets four and a half sacks, and then junior year, boom, take off. Yeah. We totally fine if that's what Burnham did. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's would be a very fair, a very fair for projection. Because if Josh Burnham has like an eleven sack season, it probably means Jordan Patel got hurt, and I don't want to see that. Yeah, right. I mean, Agreed. all right. I almost hit end broadcast by accident. Right, <laughs> like my, <laughs> took my mouse a little too high. Sorry about that. Pete Weber says, "Rank these game day traditions: the player walk, trumpets under the dome, band at Bond Hall." I have never seen any of those, honestly. No, uh, I've only been to two Notre Dame games that where I wasn't there as a to work. I mean, I've seen it from a distance. My my wife would probably rank them trumpets one when they actually did it indoors, player walk two, and and I don't know that she's ever seen the band at Bond Hall. I don't, and I definitely have never seen that one. Yeah, so I, I've I've seen all three. Mine would actually be that order that you already have it there, Pete. I would go player walk, trumpets, and band. Why would you go with player walk number one? I don't have a – I'm just just kind of curious as to what, what made that one number one for um, you. I mean, as a fan, it's like the closest you're going to get to like being a part of it, right? Like you just kind gotcha. of that interaction piece, like you, you know, high fives and everyone's excited and it kind of sets the tone for the day. Like I think it's just a really cool experience. Very cool. Next one we have was from Shane Wasson, who says, what determines a stand-up player versus a hand down on the defensive line? Two things, Ryan. Tell me if you agree. Number one is what your scheme is. Notre Dame is Notre Dame under like Mike Elko and Clark Lee were a their their weak side end was going to have his hand up. He was not putting his hand in the ground. That's just what they wanted. They it gives you more angles. It just, you know, there's a lot of reasons for it. Allows you to drop on coverage a little bit more effectively. Just gives you more versatility. And then number two, sometimes it's just some guys are better at one thing than the other. I mean, it, it's like with anything. Some guys are better in a right-handed stance than others. I've been told this by people. Isaiah Foskey really struggles to show the same explosiveness with his hand in the ground that he did in a two-point stance. Now, that's something he's going to have to work on in the NFL, Ryan. And you know what I mean? Yeah. But um, it, that's the other reason. It's, it's comfort. So it, it comes down to what your scheme plan is. So if you're a team that wants to move your Viper and drop them and do move them around, then you're going to want a guy that has more flexibility. Once your hands in the ground, you're somewhat limited on what you can do pre-snap. And then it's also somewhat limits you what you can do post-snap. If Isaiah, I mean, it may be a split second, but a split second to me, Ryan, is the difference between you running with Sean Tucker and Sean Tucker beating you by a step and a half. And he's catching a pass over your, over your shoulder. That's, sure. that's how I look at it. So I just think it gives you, a little more flexibility, and it just really comes down to coaching preference. There's no right or wrong way to do it. 
in my opinion. It's just it's what fits your scheme and what your player is most comfortable with. Yes. Well, I I think I think there's a lot of things that go into it, honestly, like some guys struggle with maintaining leverage, keeping low pads. Mm -hmm. So getting them in a three point stance with their hand in the dirt helps to keep them low coming out. Mm -hmm. Some guys are a little bit of a squattier build. So you want to keep them in a stand up because you already have that leverage battle. Some guys are more lightly built. So you kind of want them to play with good eye discipline so that they can take advantage of their quickness at the line of scrimmage. Some guys are power profile players. So you want to put their hands in the dirt so they're able to create a lot of explosiveness coming out of that three-point stance more than a two-point stance typically. Just a lot of a lot of details that usually come into that. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why guys choose to do one or the other or are told to do one or the other. We had a super chat from Raymond Harton who said, for the great American in you, Brian and Brian. Thank you, Raymond. Thank you, Ray. We had Quinn Kibler says, put this on the board, but thoughts on giving the scout team for Navy to run the triple option for one series. Totally joking. Well, sort of. It's going to be kind of like a reward for all the hard work kind of thing. Yeah. I'm pass. (laughs) Maybe cool, but like, no, I don't want to see their name run the triple option. I'm just whatever. I would say like, you know, let those guys get in the game and let them play. Like part the coach in me says like, yeah, that's all great. But like if I get those kids in the game and I don't let them run what they would need to be running for us, I'm kind of kind of you're showing showing. Yeah. I think you're like showing up the other team if that's your yeah. that's your I idea. See it perceived know. as that. Yeah. It would have to be something where in a game like this, Marcus Freeman would have had to talk to Eddie George about it previously. Yeah. And, hey man, just letting you know if you know, but then how do you do that? Hey, when we start kicking the crap out of you, this is what we're going to do. Like, how does that conversation go? Once we yeah. get up by 50, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> Come on, man. But it, ha- it would have had to be a conversation that was had beforehand, in my opinion, to your point. Yeah. But I would just hard pass. Just not for me. Yeah, just let him play. Yeah. As, as is from Steve Rolf on a super chat. Thank you so much, Steve. As a former coach is, how would you pull Nebraska out of their current funk of losing close games? I mean, it, 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 it's a daily thing, Steve. It is. It's just about a day daily culture change that Matt Rule has to instill. And you can't – here's the thing. You can't overreact to last night if you're Matt Rule. You've got to say, guys, keep on track with what we're doing. Here's where we went away from what we're preaching, putting the ball on the ground, making these kind of mistakes. That's not what we taught you to do. When you stick to what we're teaching you to do – this is what happens. Good things happen. We go on the road and we win a Big Ten game. What what coaches that aren't successful, Ryan, is they tend to overreact when things don't go correctly. When you're rebuilding the program, it's like, guys, this is – if anything, last night can be a great teaching moment for you if you're Matt Rule. Guys, we teach you to do this. You got away from that, and it cost us. You know, like we teach you to play this type of coverage in this situation – we're having you protect outside for a reason. Don't bite on that move. You've got help in there. That's that's all part of the learning process. So it's it's really just comes about staying on track and changing the culture. And a perfect example is what Mike Norvell did at Florida State. Right, he kept ha- taking their lumps, kept having bad losses, but he kept on track of we're going to instill this culture. You're either going to be part of it or you're going to find somewhere else to play. But this is who we are. We're not changing who I want us to be. And if you can't fit into that, then you're going to leave. And eventually it starts paying off. But what can happen is you start saying, well, this isn't working and we lost a couple games. So let me start doing this and doing that. And that's how you get fired. Right. Matt rules successful enough where he's going to say, guys, 
we're, we're going to do it this way. You're going to play this way. This is what we're demanding from you. And here's why we're demanding it. Here's a setup. Here's 10 plays that went great of how we teach you to do it. And here's five things that hurt us tonight because you didn't do what we taught you to do. And you just stay on track. It's it's because it's Ryan, this isn't just about changing your offense and your defense. This is a culture change. And those are the hardest thing. Those are the things that usually take the longest to instill when you're when you're when you're taking over a team that sucked and you're trying to change the culture. It's just different than changing the culture at Notre Dame when you inherited 11 and 2 football team. It's it's different. You, you you can get away with certain things. When you're doing what Matt Rule is doing, the culture change is number one. And that includes toughness, discipline, focus, all that type of stuff. That just doesn't happen overnight, especially when you're playing a team like Minnesota, who is a, a decent opponent. They would have yeah. looked a lot different last night if they were playing Southern Utah or Arkansas Pine Bluff or some of the other, you know, Elon, right? I mean, that's the other reality that you have to think about it too is, you know, they, they, they it's a tough loss. Now, you, yeah. you, 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 if you, if you kind of go at them and, and kind of crush them and, and tear them down and rip into them, bench a bunch of dudes. Then all of a sudden, you know, now they lose confidence in you because you clearly don't have confidence in them. And now you go on the road next week against Colorado and you get beat again. My thing is, is do what you got to do to stay on track, to grow and, and get that Colorado win. Because if you can somehow win against Colorado next week, you got Northern Illinois at home, Louisiana Tech at home. Those are two teams you're going to beat if you stay on track and you yep. keep building. And all of a sudden you're three and one and you're feeling a lot better. Nobody's now people are looking at the Minnesota game saying, boy, you guys were a, you know, INT at the end of the game for being four and zero, being a pretty good football team, right? You just can't overreact. That's my that's my thoughts, Ryan. What 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 what, what say you? Anything different? I mean, it, it always comes back to being process driven over results yeah. driven. I mean, you, you don't know how to win those close games until you actually do it, right? right. So I, I don't think it's any like, and right. I, there's always like management of different scenarios and games, but you do that anyway, right? There's always right. situational stuff in practice that you work on. I just think it's about having a cohesive and understood process and sticking to it. Eventually, if everyone is believing in it and there's a buy-in, you'll break through eventually as long as you're acquiring talent and developing it properly. It's just about process right now. For how do you win those games? That's the reason the process. How do you win those games? Here's how we win that game, guys. We teach you to play the game this way. Why do we teach you to play the game this way? Because that's what happens when you don't protect the ball the way we teach you to protect the ball. That's what happens when you don't do coverage the way we teach you to do coverage. That's what happens when you don't throw the football or step into the pocket or make the read or do the things that we're asking you to do. And you don't necessarily call them out necessarily that way, but that's the whole point is we lost. We don't know how to win because we don't do the things we're taught to do when the games matter most. And if you take that snap at a time and just do your job, if, if Nebraska players would have simply just done the basics in the fourth quarter they're one and zero, and we're having a completely different conversation about this game, right? That's that's what it's about, and it. So it's not about gee, if I just could have called this play better, or if you'd have, if you'd have made this if you'd have made this read differently. It's about you didn't do what we're trying to teach you to do, and if you would just trust us, it's going to work. And this is right. evidence of of that, and that leads to what we what we say all the time, Ryan: process over results. Because here's the thing: is let's say they would have made those plays at the end of the game. I'm still having the same conversation. Guys, this could have been an even more convincing win if we would if you would have done what we taught you to do, protect the football, do all that kind of stuff. That's what it comes down to. And and I and I credit to Mike Norvell because he stuck with that. And if you don't want to be a part of it, go find somewhere else to play. I don't sure. care who you are, I don't care how good of a player you are, go find somewhere else to play. I'm gonna bring in people here that want to be part of what we're doing. He stuck with it, two rough years, 
paid off last year, and we'll see if it pays off again this year. And I, I think it will. I think Florida State, are they going to be a title contender? I don't think so, but Florida State's still going to be a really good football team this year. Agree. They really are. All right, last few here. We had number one ND fan who says, if Central Michigan beats Michigan State tonight, does that tell us more about Michigan State or Central Michigan? Both. I mean, yeah. I would say I'd probably learn more about Michigan State. I mean, just I don't love Central Michigan. I actually think I will learn more about Central Michigan because I think they're just kind of a bad roster. So yeah. I don't know. I think if they beat Michigan State, it doesn't mean that they don't have a bad roster. It just means Michigan State's in a lot of freaking Ooh, trouble. I don't know, man. It means they're in a lot know. of freaking trouble. Yeah, but I mean, we're still talking about a, a low end MAC team versus a Big Ten yeah. team. Like I, I don't know. I think that would tell yeah. me a lot more about Central. Yeah, I have to see how the play, game plays out. I'm going to go with Michigan State because I, I know who Central Michigan is. I don't think they all of a sudden are, their players going to be more talented. It just means this Michigan State team is broken. That's what it means to me. But it could also, I mean, but here's the difference, right? What if Central Michigan goes out there and thumps Michigan State? Okay, that's going to tell me something about Central Michigan. But if Michigan State loses to Central Michigan, to me, it's going to be more of that ugly 17-13 to 13 game where Michigan State fumbles the ball at their own five, throws a pick six. That's what I'm talking about. I don't awesome. see Central Michigan just whooping Michigan State. That's a different story. So that's yeah. why I say it'll tell us more about Michigan State, in my opinion. We had one from Austin Smith who said, I thought Chris Tyree looked awesome last week. Think he can have a breakout last year. I hope so. It, this isn't technically his last year. He's got another year left because of COVID. His freshman yeah. year was 2020. So if Chris Tyree wants to come back next year, he can. But uh, could he have a breakout? If you, I would have to understand what breakout means, Ryan. If you're talking about like 800 to 1,000 yards of offense, sure, I can see that. I, I've said this before. And then you throw in punt returns. Yeah, I can see a breakout. Is he going to be? Is he going to go out there and have Will Fuller numbers? No. like That's not the kind of breakout that we're talking about. Right. He's not going to look like Golden Tate 20, 2007 or 2008. But could he have a, a you know a 40 catch? I mean, heck, he's on pace for 39 right now if they play 13 games. <laughs> you know sure. what I mean? Uh, so yeah, I could see something like that. I, I think we'll see more big plays from him than what we saw on Saturday, eventually at some point in time. But I just kind of like the fact that Chris did the little things on Saturday. That that's, did. that's more of the big question mark for me. Can you get open on that end cut and the two minute drill and catch that football to get that drive going? I mean, that, that right. if you don't catch that ball, maybe you don't have enough time to get down there and score a touchdown. If you don't make yeah. that first pass. Chris brings a very unique skill set. So if yeah. he's able to just tap into that and be a part of a cohesive units, you yeah. know, with the Deion Colsey's, the Bias Merriweather's, Jane Greathouse's, Rico Flores, like Jane Thomas. that's what they need. They they need that uniqueness that he brings to the table. Yeah. We had JHT nineteen eighty eight. I'm sorry, but how does Notre Dame not have a really good kicker every year? It's like kicker kicker heaven. Get a great education and maybe make the NFL. I'm going to ask you a question. Number one, name me one great kicker in college football this year. Right. Like, yeah. I, who had no Alabama's idea. won seven titles. Have they ever had a good kicker ever? Right. Yeah. That's usually like the reason why they lose games or have close games. Like here's the thing. A lot of, uh, it's hard to, there aren't a lot of great kickers. Number one, it's hard to justify for some teams. It's to have the whole, do we really want to have a, a, a an 85 scholarship go to a kicker? And then you run into the situations where you're not going to recruit kicker like you do quarterback, Ryan, where you may give a scholarship one year, but you're not going to give a scholarship every single year to a kicker like you do a quarterback. Sure. So what if that one kicker you have that you're, you know, we're going to give, we're going to give one, like Notre Dame do with long snapper. We're going to have one long snapping scholarship about every four years. That's what Kelly did. 
And so there'd be that one year of carryover between the fifth year long snapper that was leaving and then the guy that was redshirting. And then the next guy would take over for four years. Remember how they went through that with like Scott Daly, John Chan, and those guys. Well, you try that as a kicker. And what happens if, you know, let's say, here's a thought, uh, the one kicker you got is not that good. He's not as good as you thought. He gets hurt. There's an issue. Well, now you're kind of like, well, we're screwed. We have to go with a walk-on. Well, Notre Dame costs like 60, 70 grand. And you have to have great academics to get in and you can't do favors to get a kid into for. So like the, the unique thing about like Luke Talich and Jordan Faison, they had to get into Notre Dame on their own. Right. Yep. That says something about the kind of student athletes they are. They weren't getting favorable admissions because they're football players. They had to get in on their own. It's hard to convince a kid, Hey, don't go to Ohio state where you're going to pay 10 grand a year for the in-state program. Come here, pay 70 grand a year. And hopefully fingers crossed, you can get into school here. That's a right. little, that, that narrows your pool for potential walk-on kickers down very, 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 very much. Uh, so, and then some of the scholarship kids they had were, I mean, Jonathan Dorr had a great leg. He, he just, he didn't have the head for it. Yep. But I also would say, let's not forget it wasn't that long ago. Notre Dame had one of their most accurate, consistent place kickers ever in Justin Yoon. I mean, it's not like it's been a wasteland. That's more of a recent thing. I mean, David Ruffer was pretty money early in Kelly's career. You know, then Justin Yoon was pretty money during his tenure at Notre Dame. It, you know, last couple didn't pan out as much. Now you're going to the transfer portal. Even though your kicker this past year, I know he's a transfer portal kid, but he's the starting kicker for the New Orleans Saints now. So, you know. Wasn't great for Notre Dame, but he also had some pretty good kicks for Notre Dame too. It's just, guys, there aren't a lot of great kickers. I mean, there just, there aren't. There aren't a lot of great kickers. Ohio State had a great kicker, right? I think it was pretty money his whole career at Ohio State. What happened when he had to make a 50-yarder to win you a playoff game? I mean, close. Aren't a lot of great kickers. Just the reality of it. But I do think your one point, though, is correct, is you can get a great education. But the problem is most kickers are going to have to pay for that education. And uh, that's a little harder to do. We had Joseph Barnett who said, Coach, you mentioned tracking RPO plays from last Saturday. For the uninitiated, what are some pre-snap keys or reads that would tell you the play is probably utilizing RPO concepts? There's very few things that are going to tell me it's an RPO. The only thing that ever is kind of a bit of a giveaway for an RPO, Ryan, and it's not even a given every time, is if they're doing like a wide stack or a wide bunch. That's usually like, hey, we're going to read this and pull the throw a screen. That's really it. But most of these are not there's not something you can see pre-snap Joseph. So if you see Notre Dame and we saw this a couple times against Navy, they lined up uh, one, they actually both, both times, I think we're out of 12 personnel. They lined up double stack. So like each side, they were all their receivers out wide they had a guy up on the line and the guy right behind it. That was an RPO. They're going to run an RPO. So you run, you call. And I think on that particular play, they actually gave because the read told him to give, if I remember correctly, I have to go back and look at the play by play on it again. Uh, but on that particular play, Ryan, you're, 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 you you may you may have a, a higher tendency that a, an RPO is going to come. But more sure. often than not, you don't know pre-snap if an RPO is coming. And that's kind of how you want it to be. You're going to know an RPO is being initiated in post-snap. So if, if they're running the ball and they're handing off to the to – the, to the, to, if they're doing an, a run action with the running back, two things are going to tell you if it's an RPO. And they have to both be going. One is they're running pass routes. That's obviously a giveaway, but sometimes it may, it could just be a play action. And so then you got to look and see what the line is doing. If the line is blocking, like they're run blocking, then it's an RPO and he may pull and throw the football. 
Sometimes, though, an RPO is going to happen where the line's blocking, but the running back doesn't do the run action. We saw that once on Saturday where you could tell Sam Hartman told Jabron Payne, hey, call off the call off the, the fake because I'm throwing here because of the way that they were lined up pre-snap. Right? But the line's still blocked. You can see the line still, still blocking run because you don't need to tell the line they're not run blocking. You just need to make sure the back – and that happens, Ryan, is if you know the back's coming like this way and I'm pulling and throwing that way, that can – so you may tell the running back, hey – Boom, do this. We're not running this. I, I know I'm throwing based on the look. Yeah. Uh, it's all, it's almost, other than the wide stack stuff, Ryan, almost everything RPO wise is going to be post snap action is going to tell you what's an RPO or not. That's going to be. And anytime you see handoff and the receivers are out there running routes, that's now sometimes too, Ryan, we saw this on Saturday, only one receiver's running the route. There was one play where uh, I believe Jaden Thomas caught an outcut and Tobias Merriweather was going downfield to block. Now you may think, wait a minute, Tobias not know the play. No, Tobias knew the play. There was one guy running RP. The RPO read was we're going to either bang the out or we're running the ball inside because we have numbers to the field. We don't need to run run pass concepts to the field. We have leverage out there with our 12 personnel look. We're running a, a, an outside route right here one on one. And the only time we would throw is if that that window's open and the corner's off and they've got to say, you know, then you may say, I'm gonna write this action, but I'm gonna pull and throw it. That's it. Yeah. So sometimes it's not even all the receivers, it's one receiver maybe running an RPO route. Everybody else is blocking, but you know the field guys running a go route. You know that could also just be I'm running the guy off. So that doesn't even necessarily tell you either. So yeah. it, it it really comes down to to those things though. Joseph is the it's mostly, but it's almost man Ryan almost ninety nine times ninety five times out of a hundred it's going to be your post snap's going to tell you your pre snap's not going to tell you. And if you're a smart coach, you're going to do things that are giveaways and not do that. Sure, you know. So yeah, that's if you're if you're a good coach anyway couple interesting ones, Ryan, and we're going to get out of here these last couple. Let's uh, get to this one here. Archer452 says, of all the teams switching conferences next year, which will be the first to win a conference title? That's a great question. Utah. Give me Utah in the Big 12. That's my pick. I mean, that that's not a bad one, Ryan. I mean, what's the one team that made a conference change that has won a conference title in recent years? There's really only two, right? Yeah. Uh, that would be Oklahoma. And Utah, Oklahoma's not going to the SEC and winning an SEC championship. No, I mean I, you know, and I would argue Utah's going to a league that's not even as loaded as the one that they won a Pac-12 title in last year, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good one, Ryan. I, I like that Utah pick. Who, who, what would your next pick be? I'd probably go USC if Lincoln with Lincoln. I could see that. I could see USC. Sure, you know, depending on how their schedule goes, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe winning USC. one. Yeah. yeah, but I don't even feel great about that because that's you got Ohio State, you got Michigan, you got Penn State. You're going to have Oregon still, you Washington still. Yeah, it's going to be, it's gonna be that's going to be tough. It's just yeah. a competitive league. Texas, te- I'll tell you what. Ask me in three months, and I'll tell you if whether or not Texas will be in that conversation. Because if Texas does bounce back the way that people think they're going to bounce back this year, Ryan, that makes them a legit contender in the in the SEC. But I got to see sure. it first. Yep. Right? They're coming off an eight and five year. I got to see it first, but I'll say this. Texas can recruit to the level needed to compete for a championship in the SEC. I, I but that doesn't that. mean they're going to yeah. do it. That's been true for 15 years, right? And they still don't compete for the Big 12 championship. But, I mean, what did they play in, like, one Big 12 title last 10 years? And that was that year with the Erlinger, right? Sounds right. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah. So, it was, uh, yeah, I think it was 2018. Uh, actually, I think it's the last time because they, they beat Oklahoma in the regular season and then lost to Oklahoma in the Big 12 title game. If I remember correctly. Yes, they did. 
but they were a three loss team that year playing in that year. You know, they lost to Maryland that year. So 2019, they did not, I mean, they had that great game at LSU, but then they lost three, four more conference games, one, eight and five. So I think that one, that one year, I believe is the only year that Texas has made it to the big 12 title game in the last 10 years. That was a four loss team. 2017, they were seven and six. 2016, five and seven, 15. They were five and seven. I mean, guys, they have not been good for a while. 14, six yeah. and seven. Well, that's why the Thir- Texas is back yeah. joke has been for so long. Yeah. Thir- uh, the last time before 2018, the last time Texas played in the Big 12 title game was back in 2013. But again, Ryan, they were a three loss team. They lost to Ole Miss, BYU. Oklahoma State in the regular season and then got beat by Baylor by 20 in the SEC title game. I mean, yeah. uh, Big 12 title game. So, again, that the, the things that have done, they've done to get them into the Big 12 title game does not get them into the SEC title game. However, well, let me ask you this, Ryan, just structurally, just take out context, context of coaching and all that. Just structurally, do you agree with me that Texas is a program that's better geared towards sustained success in the SEC than Oklahoma is? If all things are equal, uh, yeah. And here's I why: mean, I guess so. money, yes, so sure. Recruiting base, just like those are the things that really go into it for me. Oklahoma needs a Bob Stoops, needs a Lincoln Riley to me to be that competitive because they don't have the same home. You know, if Texas is rolling and Oklahoma is rolling, I think Texas can win easier in the SEC than Oklahoma can. If all things are equal. But they're right. both programs. If you have a great coach, you can win in. That's the thing. Yeah. And, and that's why I say I, – I would say there's also right now when you add the context, I think even though Sark has a lot to prove, I still have a whole lot more faith in him than I do Brent Venables. So, so, you know, but neither of them have coaches that have shown us anything that should make us think that they're title contenders right now, not as head coaches anyway. Also agree. Connor Grant said thoughts on the lucky lefty crew saying the 2015 team is more talented than this year's group. We've said this on before at the top of the roster, there's no Will Fuller on this roster. There's no Jalen Smith on this roster, right? That there isn't where I, where I think that sometimes this debate gets lost is you can make one or two mistakes. One is you can overemphasize the depth of a team that's missing star power or you can overemphasize star power and miss the lack of depth, yeah. right? Like the 2015 team had phenomenal top of the town, top of the roster. You had Jalen Smith on defense. You had Sheldon Day on defense. You had Romeo Okwar on defense. You had Cole Luke and Kavari Russell on defense. But you were also starting Joe Schmidt on that team. You know you. Right, you were starting a true freshman, Jerry Tillery, offensive. You had Will Fuller. Will Fuller's a great player, better than any receiver the Notre Dame has. I have a feeling by the end of the year, Notre Dame's number two and number three are going to be better than what the number two and number three were in 2015. Right, you're you're going to be better at tight end this year, I believe. Running back wise, CJ Procise was a great athlete, a great player. He, we know who he was now, but I'm yeah. not trading this running back room for that one based on how it played out. But as we said, if Torian Folson is healthy, it's a little bit more of a conversation we're having here. Sure. Right. And if we're talking about talent, Deshaun Kaiser's more talented than Sam Hartman and Malik Zaire 
is more talented than Steve Angeli or Kenny Minchie for who they are now. So if you're going to focus on the top of the roster, and then, of course, our Ryan offensive line, you think that's where this team could have the advantage? Nope. That team had Ronnie Stanley, Quentin Nelson, Michael McGlinchey, Steve Elm. You know what I mean? So, like, it's yeah. it, it's kind of a wash on this team's most talented area. So there's areas where the this like this linebacking core, to me, there's no Jalen Smith in this linebacking core. But I'll take J.D. Bertrand over Jack over Joe Schmidt any day of the week. And I'll take – who even was the rover in 2015? Who even was that guy? Did they even have that guy in 2015? wasn't Osmar, was it? Was it Anwalu? James Anwalu? Might be Anwalu. I'll probably take Jack Kaiser over him right now. So, uh, you know, to me, Ryan, it's it's the 2015 team had the better top-end talent. I think this team has got a way deeper group of players because when the top-end players left in 2015, what happened the next year? Went 4-8, and eight, yeah. right? This team's going to lose some studs and still be really good next year, in my opinion, because there's so much depth of talent. So I think I think it depends on what are you what are you making as the foundation of your argument for more talented? Sure. Because I think Brady Quinn's argument. See, I think the I think the discussion that Malik and Sean had to me missed what Brady was saying. Brady was talking more. I felt more about the depth of talent, like we're discussing. Right. If we're going to talk about who had the best ten players, it's 2015. As of right now, it's 2015. Would you would you agree with that? But you you get down to and this is the debate about I've said this Alabama 2012 and Notre Dame 2012 I'll take Notre Dame's best five and put them up against anybody else's best five guys we're talking like Michael Floyd I mean excuse me Michael or Tyler Eifert Manti Teo Lewis Nix Stephon Tuitt Zach Martin the problem is is like from six to thirty <laughs> it's not close where you this is what Lou Samoji said he goes like I'm looking at Stephon Tuitt I'm thinking Stephon Tuitt is as good as anybody Alabama has and as big as any big as anybody Alabama has he goes here's the difference Notre Dame had one Stephon Tuitt Alabama yeah. had eight right and that's the difference and and to me this team is getting closer to that Ryan so I would say what are we sounding as the baseline and what I care more about is depth of talent to be honest with you. But if you're going to say whose five was better than the other five, it's the 2015 team. So I just think it depends on where you're where you're going. What are your thoughts on that, Ryan? Yeah, I, I, it's your perspective on it. I mean, one, there's a little bit of bias on the Lucky Lefty podcast about sure. this, right? I mean, just sure. with. I mean, if because he he was that. with that team, he knew sure. what they could be. Right. right. Absolutely. Right. There's a little bit of bias there, and that's okay to talk about. I just think that it comes down to. Are, I mean, you already laid it out. Are you buying the top end talent that's going to take right. you over the top? Or are you buying the depth? I personally kind of moved more to the depth, per, depth personally. I mean, that's just kind of my perspective because there's always going to be injuries, attrition, a player's not playing his game, you know, you know, having a bad day. So a team can I match up against goes, your one good player. Right. Right. Take one guy out. Yeah, exactly. What, so. what hurt Notre Dame against Ohio State? Will Fuller was better than anybody I think Ohio State had in the secondary, but they were all good enough as a unit to keep him from really going off and Notre Dame had nobody else they could turn to where you could take Michael Thomas out of that game, but you then couldn't take Ezekiel Elliott out of that game, sure. you know, or, or you, you know, you could take this guy out of the game, but you could, you could take Joey Bose out of the game, but then you had to worry about all these other dudes where when Notre Dame lost Jalen Smith, they were done yeah. and nobody else to turn to. They got hurt by that loss a lot more than Ohio state got got hurt by Joey Bosa going out. Cause remember he got kicked out for targeting. You remember that Ryan was like capping, I think right, right after Jalen got hurt. Might have been like next series or two. Joey Bosa gets kicked out for targeting. 
Yeah. That hurt Notre Dame a whole lot more than it hurt Ohio State. Why? Because Notre Dame didn't have – I mean, they're, they're turning to Jarrett Grace, who was never kind of healthy. He wasn't that same guy, right? So um, if I if what we know of these teams, I would probably take this team over that team just from a depth of talent because, again, it's more sustainable. But if you're going to say, hey, give me a, you know, a five-on-five pickup game, okay, you know what I mean? Like, if okay, sure. Give me a team that's got Jalen Smith, Quentin Nelson, Will Fuller, Ronnie Stanley, you know what I mean? Uh, CJ Procise or whoever you want to go, right? I mean, it's a different conversation. Agreed. But I also don't think what Brady Quinn said was out of line. That was kind of my thing was like, why are you – upset about it like like it wasn't a disrespectful comment it was just like this team is really good yeah so i think bias just pulls it there honestly so jason h will it be bad a seventh nat recent national title or will georgia three beat this year uh, i mean georgia is much more likely to three beat than bama win their seventh this year in my opinion yeah honestly ryan bama's best chance to to, to win it this year was they needed like Ty Simpson or Tyler Buckner or Dylan Lonergan to just really seize hold of the quarterback job. I just, yeah, I just don't think Jalen Milrose that guy. He's just, I just don't think he's that guy. I really don't. And I, and I, again, I still have my biggest concern is even more so in quarterback. I'll stay on it till I'm proven wrong. Is Kevin Steele? I just, I'm not a Kevin Steele guy. I think the answer ultimately, Ryan, is none of the above. Yeah, probably. Uh, none of the above is my answer. Yeah. But I, I would tend to agree with you that the best ch- – here's why I say best chance too, Ryan, is Georgia doesn't have to wade through the kind of schedule that Alabama does to get to that stage. I mean, if Bama's – if Georgia's – let's just say Georgia's quarterback play is the same as Alabama's. They can go 12-0. and Would you agree with that? Just because of the schedule they play? If Alabama's quarterback play is not good, they're going to be in trouble because of the quality of their schedule. I mean, that's that's the problem. I mean, when you when you look at Georgia's schedule, Georgia has Tennessee Martin, Ball State, South Carolina, UAB, at Auburn, Kentucky, at Vanderbilt, Florida on a neutral field, Missouri, Ole Miss, at Tennessee, at Georgia Tech. There's one game on their schedule that you look at and say – I think they might lose that game. That's it. Any other game would have to be a, a monumental upset, in my opinion. Then you look at the, the the Alabama schedule. They play Middle Tennessee, then they play Texas at, at South Florida, home against Ole Miss, at Mississippi State, at Texas A&M, home against Arkansas, home against Tennessee, home against LSU, at Kentucky, home against Chattanooga, at Auburn. I just think that's a tougher schedule to to work through. I just I just think it is. That's a really tough schedule to work through. So that's why I'm going to go with uh, – if I had to pick between the two, I'd probably go with Georgia, but I don't think either one of those things happened this year. I, re- I really don't. And last thing before we get out of here, everybody, uh, our guy Irish for Life has been with us for a long time, and, and he's going through some things. He says, my four-legged child – it's been getting worse watching him struggle just to stand up is killing me uh, with all that has been uh, wrong with him hurts so much to see. And I know you're going through some things too, buddy. And uh, as you know, you know, we were there with Brady uh, just having to hold him up to go to the bathroom. And, and uh, like you, he was our child. So buddy, I'm definitely praying for you. And I'm sorry that you're going through a tough time. 
you know, you got your IB family here thinking about you, man. And so, um, just, um, enjoy whatever I can just best advice can give you is just enjoy whatever moment you have, man. And, uh, and, and never forget the memories. Don't let the great memories when he was better. Uh, cause this was what hurt us with Brady is it took me a while to kind of get past the, the, those tough times to then refocus again on all the great times, all the years of great times. So that's my best advice to you, man, but you're definitely going to be prayed for by me. And I know there's some others in this chat as well. So uh, I really, really, really appreciate you coming to us with that. And we'll definitely be praying for you. So that's going to do it for today's show, everybody. Uh, Hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, hit the notification bell, share this podcast, give us a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate that. And we'll be back tomorrow after the Notre Dame game is over. Uh, for our post-game show. It'll be Vince and I doing that tomorrow, so that'll be a lot of fun. We probably won't get started quite as early as we did last time, uh, but we'll get started as quickly as we can, so definitely be ready for that action. And, of course, on Sunday, we'll be back for our pawn further review. So enjoy. Hey, and again, a reminder, if you're going to be on campus tomorrow, head over to the South Quad, Knights of Columbus. They're having that stake fundraiser. All the proceeds go to charity. You definitely want to be a part of that. I'll be swinging over there probably around 1-ish, somewhere around there. I'm enjoying myself as well. So you guys have a great rest of your day, and we will talk to you again very soon on the Irish Breakdown Podcast. Chapman, welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.